First of all, thank you for coming. It's an honor to have you. Alhamdulillah, it's a great honor to be here. Such a lovely environment. Yeah. Natural light, beautiful mural on the That's wall. That's right. Alhamdulillah. So I know you travel a lot and you're kind of the people's champion, so we're <laughs> just grateful for you taking the time. Um, so I wanted to get into just the craziness of the moment we're in with the Donald Trumps and the banning Muslims and the so-called ISIS and just the very strange political climate, especially for for all Americans in all this world, but especially for American Muslims post San Bernardino and post Paris attacks. Um, and I know in addition to be a Muslim scholar, you also are someone who's trained in you know, political science, international relations as well. So I was hoping that we could get some insight just in the context of what's going on. Um, and then I thought an interesting place is that you, you studied in Syria for, for quite a bit of time. And so I wanted to hear about what, what Syria was like then, and then maybe your perspective on what's happening, because even for myself, someone who you know, studies about these things, it's pretty hard to follow like the context of what's going on. But I think just opening with what was the kind of intellectual, spiritual journey of yourself as an American uh, coming up in the 20th century that brought you to Syria? Yeah. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullah. Peace to everyone listening out there. Uh, this is Imam Zaid Shakir. I'm here with Baraka Brew, as you probably already know. But for those of you who haven't figured it out yet, uh, I think in response, if we just jump in at the Trump thing and then mm -hmm. move to the journey, I think people have to understand that the country's in transition and uh, times of transition breed insecurity. Mm -hmm. So you have economic transition, you have economic decline, not necessarily lower level service sector, a lot of jobs down there, mm -hmm. Burger King, McDonald's, mm -hmm. flipping burgers, a lot of jobs, uh, and not at the top. Mm -hmm. Things are going very well on Wall Street, mm -hmm. and the banksters are doing very well. That's I true. think, but the middle class is being eviscerated. Mm -hmm. you know, manufacturing jobs are being shipped overseas, uh, and really the foundations of the middle class, college education, access to higher education with the uh, student loan racket. Debt right now is the leading source of liquidity on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. And so there's, there's economic transition, there's demographic transition. I mean, if America is not right now a non-white majority country, it soon will be. Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of children in public schools are non-white. The majority of babies being born today are non-white. Mm. And so there's a demographic shift that's happening in this country, all over the country. And so you combine that uh, with a decaying empire where the uh, mechanisms needed to hold on to the American empire, the mechanisms of control uh, become increasingly uh, harsh because American soft power, uh, due to the mismanagement 
of those at the top has really lost a lot of its power and appeal. And so you combine those things together and for a lot of uh, people, especially white lower classes, Mm -hmm. You have a lot of insecurity, and that insecurity is exploited by demagogues like Donald Trump. And I think you see that's one of the reasons you have the kind of appeal uh, to the inflammatory rhetoric, to the uh, uh, racist innuendos that Trump is throwing out there. So just to start with that, my personal journey, I think, is, is definitely complicated. Uh, because like anyone's journey, I mean, you look over anyone's life who's been on this planet for a few decades and our journeys are very complicated. There's a lot involved in all of our personal stories, especially living at a time of such great mobility, uh, moving around constantly. Uh, so I started in to consciously in Atlanta, Georgia, we were in a big uh, housing project there called Carver Homes in Southwest Atlanta. I understand it was destroyed, part of it became uh, part of the Olympic Village hmm. housing. Uh, from what I understand, I could be wrong. Uh, and that was a segregated neighborhood. The schools were segregated there. Hmm. And what, what I remember up to third grade, there was Price High School local high school and uh, I think also Booker T. Washington High School in the area and that's something, that's places where the older kids went to but it was, it was in that world where consciousness was first being shaped in mm -hmm. terms of societal and social consciousness and then from there I moved to Connecticut and my father and mother had split up, her family's from Georgia, his is from Michigan so she went home to Georgia then they reconciled briefly, he had gotten a job at the Sears in West Hartford, Connecticut. Hmm. And uh, so we moved into another housing project in New Britain, Connecticut. When we first moved there, it was predominantly white project, poor people. But over time, it rapidly became overwhelmingly African-American and Puerto Rican. Hmm. African-American population had its roots, <coughs> excuse me, in the Carolinas, Georgia, North, South Carolina, Georgia, people coming north to work in the factories. New Britain, Connecticut, where this Pinnacle Heights project was, was identified as the hardware capital of the world. Hmm. Stanley Works still has their global headquarters there. Anyone familiar with Home Depot and Tools knows Stanley Tools is one of hmm. the giants in the industry. Fafner Bearings, they made ball bearings for General Dynamics. He's made aircraft engines Pratt and for Pratt & Whitney, or Pratt & Whitney became, I think, General Dynamics. They made aircraft engines, fighter airplanes, for a Sikorsky helicopter, which was in Stratford, Connecticut. <clears throat> and you had Emhart Corporation, a big hardware corporation. You had New Britain Machine, Machine Tool, Skinner, Chuck & Tool. I actually had a, a job working... Uh, as a tool maker at Skinner Chuck and Tool when I got out of high school. Mm -hmm. Jobs as security guard, uh, did one year of college, and then my mother passed away. And basically when that happened, uh, I had it was pretty much on my own. In the sense that we're living in the projects, my mother passed away. My older sister, who had uh, two children of her own, soon to have three, 
moved in and basically took my room <laughs> and so you know I'm, I wasn't going to protest because mm -hmm. she had two young kids and needed a place to stay so I was basically out in the streets briefly eventually I ended up uh, leaving Central Connecticut State where I started my college uh, and went to live with my father briefly in Michigan but that didn't work because we really uh, didn't get along mm -hmm. to make it mm -hmm. just to cut through the chase <laughs> but I did uh, reconcile when I became a Muslim and Islam put great such great emphasis on honoring your parents mm -hmm. so you know I extended the olive branch and we were able to patch things up and mm -hmm. you know establish a really good good healthy relationship mm -hmm. and I owe that I owe that to Islam mm -hmm. so for some people that might come as a surprise that Islam can do something positive <laughs> but so from there uh, I, I like I said that didn't work out and I was kind of effectively homeless right and so now you're in your early 20s, no, I'm, late teens? I'm probably uh, about 20 years old, mm -hmm. 1920. And uh, so I, I decided to go in the Air Force, mm -hmm. which wasn't something I probably would have done under normal circumstances. Uh, because, you know, growing up in the conditions, you kind of develop, you do develop kind of an anti-American attitude. And... Mm -hmm. I was on the tail end of kind of the Black Panthers radicalizing, mm -hmm. and I met, I even brief, briefly flirted with communism mm -hmm. during an atheist phase uh, in the aftermath of my mother's death. The atheism didn't come because of her death and blaming God for her death and giving up on religion. It just was kind of a progression mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, led me to question God. Mm -hmm. and, and then Okay, and while looking for an answer to some of the nagging social problems in the community. So, hey, the communist revolution, that's how we're going to do it. Mm -hmm. And so I started studying left-wing politics. Uh, but I, I soon, you know, came to realize there has to be a God. Like, I'm asking my comrades, okay, in this dialectic, uh, historical dialectic that Marx is presenting with mm -hmm. the clash of economic classes, mm -hmm. turning Hegel on his head, as they say, uh, where did this first thesis come from? How did the whole thing start? If it's thesis, antithesis, synthesis, thesis, new thesis, etc., where did the first one come from? I couldn't get a straight answer, so I said, God had to have made it. Mm. And so there has to be a God, and God uh, gave life to inorganic matter if it could somehow miraculously appear from nowhere and then God orchestrated and uh, arranged all of the the laws and the dynamics that mm -hmm. sustain this universe and so I started a journey spiritual journey that took me from Buddhism versus Christianity because I was born in a Baptist family uh, but I, I ended up becoming one of those people that went to church on Easter or Sunday. Mm -hmm. Or if you heard rumors, there's really pretty girl in church and mm -hmm. say, man, I'm going to get religion though, man. I'm mm -hmm. going to state my case, mm -hmm. show up. She, she's in church, I'm going to be in church, mm -hmm. but not really committed, knowing absolutely nothing about the doctrine. So I studied it as part of this journey to God, conscious journey and when I studied it I just couldn't reconcile the various contradictions Matthew 42 generations from Abraham to Jesus 
Luke 56 generations from Abraham to Jesus and those kind of things. Then the way that the Unitarians were just ripped off at the various councils and synods that mm -hmm. culminated in the triumph of the Trinitarian doctrine. So I just, I couldn't reconcile a lot of things. So I started looking into other religious paths. I looked at the Buddhist path and uh, eventually I ended up <clears throat> And <clears throat> excuse me, and transcendental meditation. Mm -hmm. You know, I went and paid the representatives of Maharishi to get my mantra, mm -hmm. and so I started meditating. And uh, you know, Stevie Wonder gave a little impetus. Transcendental meditation mm -hmm. speaks of inner, and the inner visions. Yeah, inner vision. <laughs> transcendental meditation gives you peace of mind, mm -hmm. and so. You know, I definitely was getting peace of mind. I think they said if you do it long enough, you can levitate. You start lifting up. I was getting it to the takeoff phase. And 10% uh, of the people is like the molecules in a magnet. Once you polarize so many, the whole metal bar becomes a magnet. So if we can get 10% of the people meditating, then we can have a peaceful society. So I was definitely on that path and then it just as the deeper I got into it I started becoming very disaffected uh, and dissatisfied because my reasoning was as follows like you know I feel really good I'm really at peace but this isn't doing anything for my people mm -hmm. this isn't doing anything for the people so is there a way to reconcile sort of spirituality with social activism right. and social justice. And it was right at that point when my questioning was going along those lines that I was introduced to Islam. And so someone gave me a copy of this book, Islam in Focus. It's still out there, Hamoud Abdul Ati. Uh, may God have mercy on him, uh, Egyptian author, Islam in Focus. And, you know, all the questions I had about religion, all the questions I had about life, all of the questions I had about who we are as human beings and our relationship to our creator, they were all answered for me. Mm -hmm. And even misconceptions, there's a section, misconceptions, polygamy, polygamy jihad, issue back then even. Mm -hmm. And uh, so we're talking the mid 70s. And so in 1977, I took my Shahada, as did a lot of other folks. Mm -hmm. I mean, That's a big at, year. It was a very good year. <laughs> and so, and so that started my religious journey. I, I was a Muslim struggling. I was in the Air Force at this time, mm -hmm. like I said, going into the Air Force uh, to work, get the GI Bill and, uh, you know, to get a roof over my head. So I guess I was drafted. The poverty, the poverty draft. draft. That's what they yeah. call it, yeah. The poverty draft definitely got me. But I have no regrets. You know, I met a lot of wonderful people. It, instilled in me a great sense of discipline. I was able to do two years of college. So when I got out, the GI Bill not only paid for my last final years at American University in Washington, D.C., but it also uh, paid for my f two years of master's studies. Mm -hmm. I graduated my master's degree at Rutgers in New Jersey. And so, your degree was in? Uh, undergrad was uh, international relations with a specialty in intercultural communications and graduate was international relations, political science with the international relations track. Mm -hmm. And uh, so yeah, 
So I did those degree programs. Uh, international relations, because uh, coming out of the Air Force, I actually was thinking of a career in the State Department mm. as a diplomat, because I still had this passion to change the world. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I figured, okay, well, you have to be involved in the world to change it. What better way to be involved than the State Department? Mm -hmm. But, you know, as I learned about some of the uh, less savory aspects of American foreign policy, then the State Department is the home base for the CIA, mm -hmm. not the Pentagon. Uh, that kind of dream evaporated. Uh, then I contemplated law school, and then, you know, we're now the early 1980s, and we're at the height of the Iranian Revolution, and so you have this Muslim revolution that's going to impact the world mm -hmm. in positive ways, and, and so I, I bought into that. You know, I'm a young person, I want to change the world, and so that became very attractive, and mm -hmm. so that being the case, like, the night before I was going to take the LSAT, so I'd already applied to law school, and in fact, I was applied to American University's law school, uh, and I think one other in Washington, D.C., because I was still in D.C. at the time. The night before the LSATs, I said, you know, I'm not going to do this. This is kafir law. Whoever rules by other than what Allah has revealed is a morally corrupt, is a disbeliever, is an oppressor. And so I just said, you know, I'm not going to do that. And that's why I went to graduate school. And, uh, you know, you look back over your life, you can question your decisions, but in the space I was in at the time. And then what I subsequently was exposed to, I have no regrets mm -hmm. over that decision. And Allah is the very best of planners. You know, if you zigged when you zagged, <laughs> then everything would have ended up differently right. and you wouldn't yeah. be here right here it's with America Blue. That's right. Now it's easy to play that historical folks. game of the, the great what ifs in, yeah, in, the, in the great story of history and then in our own individual lives as well. Exactly. And so instead of law school, I know before you went to study, you were already an imam, right? And that was in Connecticut? Uh, no. So after I finished uh, graduate school now, uh, I went back home to Connecticut. So I've been away for a while. I've been in the Air Force, and then mm -hmm. I've been in uh, undergrad mm -hmm. for a couple years in Washington, D.C., and then three years in New Jersey. And so, you know, I went home uh, to Connecticut, but most of my siblings had moved to New Haven, left New Britain, and they were in New Haven. So I moved to New Haven, and there, when I moved there, the first thing I did was look for a masjid. And it was Juma. We went to a particular masjid, and it was prayer time, and they were closed. And it was Juma. And so we went to another masjid in West Haven, but it was predominantly uh, Arabs, primarily Egyptians, Palestinians. There were, at that point, there were uh, a lot of Malaysian students also. For the late 80s, you had a lot of Malaysians study studying in America, unlike some other ethnic uh, groups, the Malaysians tended to go back. So only a handful stayed here. They were very faithful to the mission of getting education and going back mm -hmm. to develop their country. So most of them are gone now. We're in touch with uh, 
one, there's one sister who's very uh, dear friend of our families. We're still in touch with mm-hmm. via social media. Uh, a lot of wonderful people. But in any case, uh, it was a, it was a foreigner's masjid, if you will, to use that term. Mm-hmm. And so a group of brothers and sisters, we got together and said, we need a masjid in New Haven to make dawah, to really represent Islam, down in the hood, if you will. Mm-hmm. And, and so we started Masjid al-Islam there in New Haven for that very purpose, for dawah. And mashallah, we, we had a great impact in the city. Uh, at one point, uh, we, had, we initiated uh, drug-free zones around the schools, working very closely with the schools and crafting policies to kind of keep young people in school. We had brothers and sisters in the after-school programs for the kids whose mothers were working, single mothers who were working, didn't get off to five. They had a program to keep the kids in the school but bring in various community resources. So Mm -hmm. we have brothers teaching martial arts. I actually taught uh, Arabic to second graders in Helen Grant School, (laughs) and they actually were learning. Mm -hmm. And so we have programs like that going on. We had patrols, neighborhood patrols around the hot spots where a lot of this was at the height of the crack wars. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the crack selling and turf battles are going on. And so we helped to, to stabilize a few neighborhoods via that, that work. So kids in high school were taking shahada mm-hmm. because they had this little Muslim crew. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, mm-hmm. It was really you that was know, the it was, time, and that was, was yeah, the eighties. You had in the hip hop. It was all about you know Islam was the <clears throat> messaging in the in the yeah. in the media, you know. And I I come on the stage in the in the nineties, coming of age, you know, and you know it was not just in the inner city neighborhoods. Now it was like this message of Islam being cool through hip hop was spreading exactly. into all the you know white neighborhoods, middle class neighborhoods, everything, and so that was kind of my own. So you, I mean, you lived a full journey almost, you know, you lived quite a life before even going overseas. Now you see a lot of like young people going overseas to study before they really had many experiences. Yeah, and I was teaching political science Mm -hmm. at Southern Connecticut State University. That was the imam of the masjid. So we said, we need this masjid. Who's going to be the imam? Well, brother, you were in Egypt. Because after I finished Rutgers graduate school, I said, I'm going to go study Arabic because I gave all my time studying politics mm-hmm. and society. So I'm going to do something for my dean. So I, I spent 11 months in Egypt studying Arabic. So when I came back and then returned home to Connecticut and we decided to start this master's, like, who's going to be the imam? Well, brother, you know Arabic. Mm-hmm. You're going to be the imam. Like, what? Okay, whatever. <laughs> But as I got involved in that work, and it was clear, and I was working full-time the whole time. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't have a salary. This is mm-hmm. storefront, inner-city masjid. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was working at the Yale Medical Bookstore. So I learned, like, the whole corpus. I probably could have passed my uh, uh, MCATs. <laughs> this is reading the books on the side, like Gray's Anatomy and Netters, after Gray's kind of went out, and the Merck Manual, and... Mm-hmm. Diane Kubler-Ross on death and dying and, you know, just a, a wide array of the, the literature in there. And, you know, and working there, you become familiar with it. And so anyway, so I was working there. I worked at Hamden Welfare. I was the director of Workfare 
uh, in the Hamden, Connecticut Welfare Department, city adjacent. It's like Oakland and Berkeley. Mm-hmm. New Haven will be Oakley and Hamden will be Berkeley. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of two cities very much intermeshed mm-hmm. with each other. So I was director of workfare there. So I'm working the whole time, full time, and being imam at the masjid. But doing that, it became pretty obvious. Like, it seems like this is the direction my life is going, working feasibility because that was the real full-time job. Working full-time was like part-time. Right. Because the morning before I went to work, in the evening when I got off of work, and the weekend, Saturday and Sunday, all day. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was kind of clear that's the direction I'm going. That being the case, I, I knew I needed to go and really study the religion at a deeper level because, you know, you can't defraud the people with something so important as their spiritual, right. their salvation, and then you're representing the religion. And, you know, I, I could see I probably made a lot of mistakes mm-hmm. because I didn't quite know Mm-hmm. you know what I should be doing and I mean we were very very uh, militant mm. you know we even had these buttons at war like mm. we were at war with the system mm-hmm. and the oppression of the system and you know we were uh, marching and protesting and I mean every protest like we were there in New mm-hmm. York City at the UN sometimes we bring down more people than the whole local New York mm-hmm. network of messages combined like we roll down in buses sometimes or a bus and some cars and just bring the whole Jamaat mm-hmm. and brothers sisters children well, it was beautiful you know we had a really strong Ramadan program we do like uh, three khatams of the Quran in Ramadan, the last 10 days be up all night and brothers and sisters bring their kids, put them to sleep in the masjid and then wake up at one o'clock and go to Fajr after the Tarawih and then get up, go home, take a couple hour nap and go to work. So we were grinding. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, you know, I realized that. And then, you know, Allah sometimes calls you. And so I, I had met uh, one of my students, in fact, when I was teaching at Southern Connecticut. Uh, I won't say his name. Uh, he, he is currently in the States. He had to leave uh, with some of his family members because of the current situation. But in any case, uh, he said, you know, oh, you want to study? Come to Syria. And I actually applied to Medina University, mm-hmm. but I didn't get, well, that was an earlier story. That's when I went to Egypt. I was accepted to Medina University, but I, I had already gone to Egypt to study Arabic. And a good friend of mine, one of the best friends, actually went to Medina and became a very influential uh, leader in, in the Salafi movement. Mm-hmm. So uh, just Allah put me on a different path. Right. And that wasn't meant to be. But in any case, so... So you I end up in Syria. End up in Syria. What was... Because I think for most Americans, they have no idea. Like, Syria wasn't even anything you ever thought about until a few years ago with the war. So what was Syria like? Because Syria, for Muslims, is a very special and important place. Yeah, no, it's a deep history. Uh, you know, figures Imam Nawawi. <clears throat> he did the bulk of his study and spent his adult career in Damascus on one end on the other end Ibn Taymiyyah mm-hmm. <clears throat> spent his career in Damascus is buried in Damascus mm-hmm. 
his grave is still identifiable. He's buried with his ma- his mother and a servant mm. in the back of the medical school in Baramika, mm. in the heart of Damascus. So, and everyone in between, Imam Nawi and Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Salah, the great scholar of Hadith, Ibn Qayyim Jawziyah, one of Ibn Taymiyyah's disciples, and a great, great scholar in his own right, Ibn Rajab Mm -hmm. al-Hanbali, you know, just so, Ibn Kathir, and Mizzi, great Hadith scholar, uh, just so many major figures, uh, Ibn uh, Malik, the author of the Althea ibn Malik, sort mm-hmm. of the definitive con- commentary mm-hmm. on the, uh, or, or the poem in Arabic grammar, the Althea ibn mm-hmm. Malik. Uh, they're all there in Damascus. Uh, Sahaba. Right. Bilal. So yeah, it's a 1,400-year, yeah. you know, consistently occupied, uh, consistently inhabited, lived, inhabited city. city. On earth. Uh, um, yeah. And a center of <clears throat> ancient culture, language, scholarship, spirituality. Absolutely. And when you came there, I mean, that's one of the sad things about the war. It's like it was still oh, like it's a thriving. It was it a was, thriving, it was thriving, continuation bustling, of, and coexistence. Mm-hmm. I mean, you definitely you had the the Alawi dominated regime, but everyone's coexisting. Religion. After the tragic events of the late 70s, early 80s, uh, culminating with the massacre in Hama, things gradually had recovered. Uh, Kids were memorizing Quran, uh, lessons of knowledge were available in most of the masjids. Some had circles of knowledge, uh, Jamil Zaid bin Thabit, Jamil Abdul Karim Rifai. Uh, these places were, were bustling and thriving. Abi Nur, Mahad al Fats. You had students from all over the world between Abi Nur, uh, Mahad al Fats, Al Furqan, Aminiya, all of these uh, religious schools. Uh, uh, Mahad Badruddin al Hassani, which was a new school that was built uh, in the memory of the great, great, great scholar Badruddin al Hassani. It was bustling. It was alive uh, with Islam and scholarship, and uh, it was an amazing place and coexistence and and peace. It's it's be it boggles the mind to uh, think what's happening now. So I, I did the Abinur uh, College. Some people I say uh, say I was the first American to graduate from there. It's not true. I was preceded by one semester by Sister Nidal Abdul Mu'min, who's actually here in Oakland mm. and teaches uh, Tajweed at, at Zaytuna College. Mm-hmm. So she was the first American to set the records mm-hmm. there straight. I was the second American. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is I was, uh, the last year I went to Morocco to study some things over there with some of the shuyukh in Morocco. So I didn't go to class. Mm-hmm. So. You had to go to class to get your residency permit unless you weren't in the country. Then if you weren't in the country, you could come back and take... It was a kind of a French system. You had mid-year exams. Those were in January. And then you had the end-of-year exams in June and going into July. So I went to Morocco and I came back for the mid-year exams. I passed all of those. But the end-of-year exams... Because what I would do is I'd come back like a week before the exam, just cram like crazy. 
and then take the test. So the end of your exams, I did the same thing. I came back and I just crammed, came back a week, 10 days before the exam period. And it was a, a test a day for like 14, 15 days because you had 14, 15 subjects, mm -hmm. just one day after day. So if any of you stressed out over your final exams, you know, try that regimen. <laughs> so I actually failed one. I failed inheritance law because mm. that's not something you can cram on right. very effectively. So I had to <clears throat> take the makeup, <clears throat> excuse me, the next semester. So you could, if you fail less than, I think, three tests, you could take the makeup on those three. Mm -hmm. So I did the makeup and the inheritance law and... Uh, I think I also failed uh, teaching methodology, which was just, as a lot of people failed that. The teacher was very eccentric and no one knew what he wanted on the exam. So I had to make those two up. And so Sister Nidal, who was in my class in the sisters division, she passed all the tests. So she's the first. And then I, I took the makeup and passed. And I did the same thing. I crammed again. I went back to Morocco and came back mm -hmm. and crammed, but I only had two exams to cram for, so it was relatively easy. So you're overseas in Syria and then for, it seems like, a, a little bit of time in Morocco. For how long? Totally uh, seven years. Seven years. Yeah, and I came back 2001, right after 9-11. In wow. fact, I was in the masters studying for the makeup exam well, so what happened, they would lock this particular masjid up. Only a few large, larger public masjids would stay open between the prayers. Mm -hmm. uh, this particular masjid, Jamil Khair, which was home of Sheikh uh, Tarabishi, who had one of the highest senates for Quran in the world, Rahimahullah. He was the imam there for a long period of time. But when I got there, he was, he was very sick, and he subsequently passed away. May Allah have mercy mm -hmm. on him. But anyway, so... They would lock the door, so during this exam period, I had them lock me in. <laughs> so that you could stay, but you're going to be locked in. So I said, that's good. That means everyone else is locked out. <laughs> so I could do some serious studying. Mm -hmm. And so I'm locked in the masjid, and so the neighborhood kids, they start beating on the door. Boom, 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 boom. Sheikh Zaid, Sheikh Zaid, America's under attack. Someone on al America. Beit al-Abyad wa Bintagan wa Sears Tower wa Barjain fi New York. It's like everything was under attack. The Pentagon, the Twin Towers, the Sears Tower in Chicago. The, and I'm like, okay, get the imam. Have him let me out. So they ran and they got the imam and he unchained the doors. And then I went home. And the apartment we were renting had a, a satellite hookup. Mm -hmm. But we never used it. I, I, we never even hooked it up. So we're hooking the thing up, trying to aim the satellite in the right direction. We finally got it, bam, CNN with the smoking towers. Tom Clancy giving commentary. Mm -hmm. You know, Tom, is this life imitating art? Because Clancy Moore wrote a book about planes crashing into the Pentagon or wow. something. And then Osama bin Laden, like, man, this thing's still burning. And they got Osama bin Laden nailed down as the culprit. Mm. So in any case, you know, and then the towers collapsed. And we had a meeting of all the students. And I mean, it was really, I remember that meeting, very mature, like what we need to do. Uh, and we, we realized, like, right then, it was just incredible that, you know, we've been 
doing a, a, a lot of things wrong in mm. terms of just not educating people and uh, just going pursuing these fantasies of, of without doing anything to even prepare people for Islam mm -hmm. uh, and open their minds and educate them and teach them and it, it was really a, it was a profound meeting at, at, at that all the students had at that point and so uh, two months later, I'm back in America. And, and is that why you came back, or that just happened no? I was to be planning to come back. Okay. It just the timing was like that. I just planned to do these two tests. So this was the fall semester, mm -hmm. and the test period was at the kind of beginning mm -hmm. of the the new academic year. And so I was going to take the test and then go back to America. And we had planned it out because we had to plan it out in advance to get cheap air tickets. So we flew from. Or took the bus actually from Damascus to Medina, the Ziara, and stayed a few days in really slummy part of Medina. But you know, we students didn't have any money. Then to Mecca for Umrah, then to Egypt to buy books, <laughs> and uh, from the old bookstore Al Babi Al Halabi near Jam Al Azhar, and then from Egypt to Morocco because, like I said, I spent uh, almost a year there studying with some of the shuyuk there in Morocco and to visit some of the teachers and friends we had there. Then from there to England, because we, we usually, when we were going back and forth from Syria, we'd stop in England on the way there and the way back. Mm -hmm. uh, and then from England back home. And so we took that journey, and, you know, it was beautiful. Then we flew into JFK Airport. Even in November, it was, it was virtually empty. With that, like that night, we were the only people going through customs, mm. and they just passed us through. We had a ton of books with us, in addition to what we had shipped. And uh, then we got in the parking lot. It was like uh, it was surreal. So it's nighttime. The lights of the and then the cars that were in the long-term parking they had all these American flags on the mm -hmm. the antennas. Mm -hmm. And now it was been like two months not quite it was early November so almost two months after the the attacks in New York and and Washington so these flags were generally battered and tattered American flags on the car antennas and the whole parking lots like that and it's totally empty and then uh, we're driving up to Connecticut in a rental car and we hear that you know there's a, an alert at JFK Airport. We're like, man, they're after us. <laughs> and so we, we made our way back and then started there and for almost two years. And then through a set of circumstances, just ended up out here. I was actually, because in Connecticut, the community had changed. Like in our absence, like we left is very stable. We had a, we had a domestic... Uh, abuse team in place and we had a marriage uh, program in place and even to get married you had to go through this program I wouldn't do the wedding hmm. and so you know it's very stable socially and then we came back this one had gotten divorced that one's gotten divorced and you know it was just it was very difficult mm -hmm. it was very difficult and then a lot of the divisions that it sunk in was still present so this mm -hmm. faction is mm -hmm. battling with that faction and this 
And so it was just heartbreaking. So, you know, I decided I have to leave. And actually, I was going to Dallas to be assistant imam in Richardson Masjid under Dr. Yusuf Kavachi. Hmm. It was a done deal. The contract was signed. And then to this day, I don't know how I ended up at Zaytuna Institute. <laughs> like, I know I went to a Dean Intensive in Calgary. Sheikh Hamza was there. I know we talked. But the actual circumstances, I can't explain. Mm -hmm. That's the absolute truth. And Dr. Yusuf thinks that Sheikh Hamza like, snatched me up, and he's <laughs> never forgiven Sheikh Hamza for that. But mm -hmm. that's not true. It's, uh, just one thing led to another, mm -hmm. and I can't begin to recount what those things were. Mm -hmm. And then, bam, here I am mm -hmm. in California, where I was born. So in a sense, I was born in Berkeley, at Alta Bates Hospital. And my parents were living on 6th Street or 6th Avenue down in Berkeley. Uh, so, so then bam, you have, fast forward, you're working with Zaytuna, t training, you know, at a kind of seminary program, training young Muslim scholars, and then through the transitional phase now to Zaytuna College, now right. the first Muslim liberal arts college in America. And that's a really interesting kind of point of departure because as much as 9-11 changed the relationship of America with Islam, quote-unquote, and especially for American Muslims, it seems like in the aftermath of, you know, the Paris attacks and then San Bernardino, we're in a very different dynamic than what it was. Do you feel um, that 9-11, that we're in, you know, that it's different? post 9-11 than now and why? What do you think the changes have been in the last think, decade? Yeah, I think it's definitely different. Uh, I think some of it's for the better hmm. because I think before 9-11 in some quarters there was a lot of delusional thinking mm -hmm. and I think you, you have a lot of right-wing anti-Muslim people that capitalize on some things that were said and done during that period which were innocuous in and of themselves but, you know, the rhetoric that was flying around, uh, taken out of context, can, can be scary to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. So I think in the sense that some people are more careful in terms of just how they uh, talk. Mm -hmm. And not saying, like, being duplicitous, but just realizing a lot of it was just hot air, hot air and empty rhetoric mm -hmm. that had no institutional support, mm -hmm. that had no uh, meaningful uh, societal program behind it. And, and so, in the sense that people are, are more cognizant of the words have to be more consistent with the reality on the ground. Mm -hmm. And you have to be very sober and realize if you don't build an infrastructure that you're not going to impact right. this society. Like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had a powerful voice, but if, if he didn't have the Southern leadership, Southern Christian mm -hmm. leadership council behind him, and if he didn't have the, the people of, of SNCC mm -hmm. at one point getting behind him, if he didn't have at the later phases the, the entire anti-war movement behind him, mm -hmm then his, his why I, I opposed the war in Vietnam speech would have just been empty rhetoric. Mm -hmm. But is that in fact 
the speech that signed his death warrant. If it is, it's because that speech galvanized a movement. Mm -hmm. And it touched million, millions of people. Just as the civil rights movement touched millions of people. And it had millions of people behind it. Mm -hmm. So the rhetoric wasn't uh, empty. The rhetoric was part and it was the articulation and the culmination, the fruition of a larger movement that represented millions of people. And so for the message of Islam, and when I say that, not the message of global domination or some of this stuff that people talk about, but the message of social justice, the message of racial equality, mm -hmm. the message of uh, <clears throat> uh, a meaningful uh plans and policies to uplift the people of the developing world mm -hmm. for that message to resonate and for it to move beyond the realm of empty rhetoric is going to have to have millions of people behind it and to get millions of people behind it we have to do the kinds of grass work roots well grass roots work mm -hmm. grass works roots mm -hmm. okay I didn't have my morning joke <laughs> I don't drink, drink coffee by the way mm -hmm. anyway but the grassroots work necessary to get those millions of people behind that message. And that's a lot of uh, networking, it's a lot of bridge building, it's a lot of solidarity. Because if you stand with people, you'll stand, they'll stand with you. Mm -hmm. But if you don't stand with people, they might out of their goodness and sympathy and empathy stand with you, but there's no guarantee. So, you know, we have to stand with other people we have to identify mm -hmm. with the struggles that are going on and we have to understand how anti-Islam is used. Mm -hmm. So the fear of Muslims, you know, that unknown and the uh, exploiting the unfortunate uh, circumstances that lead to some Muslims uh, themselves being exploited and put in situations where they're amenable to being used. Uh, in acts of violence, uh, those those circumstances and, and those situations uh, drive wedges between people and drive wedges between groups. And to to break that down, we have to get out there and we have to stand with people. Okay, this is the point I was trying to make: the fear of anti-Islam, the fear of quote-unquote Muslim terrorism is exploited to push laws through that disproportionately affect other communities. Right. So they push anti-immigration laws through, but it aren't, Muslims aren't affected by those laws, Latinos are. Mm -hmm. And they create this climate of hatred and bigotry, but when the average racist looks around, he or she, if they're in Wampolo, Mississippi, mm -hmm. that's next to Tupelo, Mississippi, <laughs> They don't see any Muslims, but they see African Americans, mm -hmm. and so that that racist angst, mm -hmm. and and that 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 antipathy towards the other is then exercised on African Americans mm -hmm. who are shot in the streets like dogs, mm -hmm. in in many of our cities, and so we have to realize that this is a joint struggle, and we have to stand with those communities who are victims of the policies that anti-Islam creates the environment to make possible. And only collectively can we begin to roll back this kind of uh, 
uh, bigotry that we started with, uh, exemplified by Trump and, and his rhetoric and the people that support him. The rhetoric, again, in and of itself, as we said in the case of irresponsible Muslim rhetoric, if you will, would be meaningless, mm -hmm. insignificant, mm -hmm. if it didn't have millions of people behind it and supporting it and endorsing it. And so Trump has those millions of people behind him who are endorsing that rhetoric and supporting that rhetoric. And I think it behooves us to join with those who are pushing back against it because it's not just anti-Muslim, it's anti-immigrant, mm -hmm. it's anti-Latino, mm -hmm. it's anti-black. And so Muslims have to stand with the Latinos. Muslims have to stand with the African-American communities. And then when that happens, you'll find those communities will definitely stand with us. Mm -hmm. and, and sometimes we are us. Mm -hmm. You know, it gets tricky. Right. And so... Well, I think that's a really important point. You know, it's part of a trajectory. And what you see is, you know... Post 9-11, even, you know, someone like George W. Bush saying, like, Muslims are good, this is a good religion, these are just extremists. And now you have the, the Republican frontrunner saying ban all Muslims and not being able to really draw a distinction between Islam uh, and ISIS. And I, I don't think it's a case of not being able to draw, draw a distinction. Mm -hmm. It's a case of not wanting to draw a distinction. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it, you can mobilize far more people against a pervasive enemy. And I think that's what it's all about at the end of the day. And with the fall of communism, you're not going to get American taxpayers, as we said, during this time of economic transition, when the infrastructure is crumbling, the educational system is crumbling, resources, people don't want to uh, go into all this student loan debt. Let's spend some of that public money. But you're not going to get people to spend money that should be spent on infrastructure, that should be spent on jobs, that should be spent on education, on war, unless you have this pervasive mega enemy. Right. And with the decline of the Soviet Union, Muslims became that mega enemy. Mm -hmm. And it took two decades for it to reach the point where, in the eyes of the public, Islam and Muslims are the new communism. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where we are now. And so I don't think it's so much a, 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 an inability to make that distinction. I think it's, a, it's the lack of desire to make that distinction for political reasons. And the, the bottom line is to keep this war machine going. Mm -hmm. When you say the war of terror might last our lifetime, you're saying this regime where we're uh, sending billions of dollars in weapons selling to these regimes. We just concluded a $46 billion weapon deal with the Saudis, part of a much larger weapon deal mm -hmm. to the regimes in the Middle East. And what? So they can continue to bomb the hapless Yemenis mm -hmm. and intervene on our behalf against this fictitious Iranian threat. Mm -hmm. But it keeps the weapons flowing. We just airdropped 50 tons of weapons into northern Iraq. Mm -hmm. And from both sides, you can be rest assured a lot of that is going to end up in the hands of ISIS. Right. We don't care. We armed the Sunnis. We mentioned the Saudi regime. We armed the Shiites. The mm -hmm. Shiite-dominated Iraqi government. Mm -hmm. You know, whoever's buying, we're selling. And I, I somewhat agree with those who say 
you know, that's the bottom line. It's not about Sunnis. It's not about Shis. It's about keeping the chaos going so you can keep the appetite for weapons going so you can keep this military industrial complex firmly entrenched in this country. Mm -hmm. And it's through that framework that I view a lot of things that are going on. Yeah, and I mean, I, I saw a recent poll which said, which we discussed earlier, which is that forty six percent of Republicans believe that most Muslims support ISIS. So in that type of environment, it becomes understandable why they're supporting deportation, uh, internment camps, why they're attacking yeah, with Muslims all the in kind the street. Of propaganda you have going and the fear mongering okay. that you have going and irresponsible leadership. Uh, and then just the whole industry mm-hmm. culminating with Glenn Beck. Mm-hmm. The problem is Islam, mm-hmm. where he takes basically Robert Spencer's academic arguments and mm-hmm. just dummies them, dummies them down to a level where the masses can understand and that's the number one bestseller Mm -hmm. before Paris, before San Bernardino. And so, you know, we have our work cut out and I think if if we conclude on any point, and I think it's a point you raised, is the spiritual. Uh, This thing is bigger than us. Mm -hmm. And so as we try to begin to think our way out of this situation into a better space, as we began to envision policies and to plan our way out of the current situation into a better space, we have to think about how we can connect with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, with Almighty God, so that we can have access to a higher power. Because this is bigger than us. Some people point to a demonic element. There's definitely a demonic element. Involved in all of this, there's an occult element uh, that's present amongst some in our government and in many elements of popular culture. And, you know, people are moving away from religion and that space that the human soul, in the human soul, uh, for connection with something beyond and greater than us is for many people being filled by the occult. And so you have a lot of dark stuff going on. And the only way to dispel darkness is with light. Mm -hmm. And we have to be the people of light. Mm -hmm. We have to be the people of truth. That truth vanquishes falsehood. Truth comes, falsehood perishes. We have to be messengers of truth. We have to be messengers of light. We have to constantly be working to refine our souls and to elevate our souls so that we have a spiritual power Mm -hmm. that constitutes our strategic advantage. Mm -hmm. Because we're not going to get an advantage in military power. Mm -hmm. We're not going to get an advantage in political power. Mm -hmm. We have an advantage in spiritual power. Mm -hmm. And we have to tap into that spiritual power. And we have to believe that when Allah Ta'ala wants something, as He, as he mentions, kun fayakun, be and it is. We have to believe that when people are beloved to Allah, whoever uh, opposes and transgresses and oppresses the one I love, that I declare war against those dark forces. 
We have to believe that when the person purifies himself and draws close to God through the voluntary acts and draws even closer through, I mean, through the obligatory acts and draws even closer through the voluntary acts until God loves that person, that when that person prays to God, God answers. And if in that state my servant were to ask something of me, I would grant it. So at the end of the day, this is a spiritual battle. And the forces of darkness, they exist across the religious divide. They exist across the racial divide. They exist across the national divides. And so light doesn't respect any of those distinctions. Light is transcendent. And so we have to radiate a transcendent life light that touches the hearts and the souls of good folks out there and then become part of the good and the forces of good that are working for positive change in the world. In the meantime, keep smiling, keep loving, keep living, keep laughing, and don't allow the, the darkness to, to darken and deaden our spirit and our soul. And if we can do that, you know, there's, there's good in the future. Mm-hmm. I mean, and that's the believer's job. And that's it. And there's so many people, I mean, you know, in the Bay Area, across the country, across the world that across, like you say, across religion, race, that really want to work for a world that's more just, that oh, takes absolutely. care of this planet, food justice, racial justice, absolutely. economic justice, ecological and, justice. Exactly. And I think in some sense, when things get difficult, it forces those uh, people to really step up and to really coalesce and move and, and, and get together right. for for transformation because right. if we're not going to do it now when will we do it you know? absolute great great challenges constitute the foundry that forges great people That's right. and so we have great challenges in our day and I'm absolutely confident that great people will emerge to take mm-hmm. on those challenges and the human story goes on. Mm-hmm. You know, it goes on. It's like a caravan. Mm-hmm. And so we just hook our camels to the camels in line before us mm-hmm. and join that caravan, mm-hmm. that civilizational march, as they mm-hmm. say, that human march, and just keep it moving. That's right. The pun and is intended. And it's, as they say, you know, like the sages and the prophets across time and space have said, it's not ease that makes people, you know, good it's not ease that even makes people happy but it's this internal virtue and standing for principles uh, no matter what the outward circumstance is and and you know it's almost like metallurgy in the sense that like the fire the difficult struggles are necessary to kind of be formed and transformed it's like how could you have a malcolm or mlk if there weren't these type of terrible situations absolutely you know we see who we are the metal of our souls yeah absolutely so So may Allah Ta'ala Almighty God forge uh, purify our metal so there's 100% pure and it's valuable it's more valuable than silver more valuable than platinum more valuable than gold that is a precious metal that transcends any physical descriptions Amen. Alhamdulillah. Well, thank you for your time, Iman. I appreciate you providing the opportunity and you keep up the great work Mm -hmm. that that you do and keep keep the verses coming out of of your heart. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, keep touching lives and keep doing this work to communicate. You never know who might end up listening to, to a broadcast such as this. And uh, may Allah Ta'ala bless you, bless your marriage, and uh, bless your studies, and bless all the folks that, that you're associated with. And, you know, hopefully we get to do it again sometime mm -hmm. soon. All right. Thank you, Imam. Assalamu alaikum.